Alright everybody, welcome to another developer live cast here on the channel. As always, I'm Josh Spicer, and we have another great perceptive podcast for you today. We're going to be talking to another indie developer who is currently working on a modern retro RPG. We're going to be talking about not only the design of it, but also what it's like to be making a game that pretty much looks like something from over 30 years ago in today's market. So, please welcome from Scape IT, the developer behind Scold Against the Black Priory, Al, and I'll let him introduce his full name there. <laughs> <laughs> hey Josh, what's up? I am doing well, how about you? Fine as well, really, really cool of you to have me on, I'm really, really looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, getting in touch with me about wanting to do this. And again, for any developers watching, we are always looking for new guests to come on and talk design. Because as everybody knows, we can certainly do that at length here. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's Norwegian autumn outside, so it's uh, starting <laughs> to get a bit cold and wet. But uh, that's the perfect climate for game development, I think. So uh, <laughs> so everything's fine. It's been a busy week. You know, and when you try to balance having a day job with a um, pretty big project on the side, you have to uh, you have to keep your uh, laser focus from day to day. But it's uh, it's been going super fine so far. So uh, happy days. Mm -hmm. We are in, I guess, like fall summer weather here or summer fall right now. All the seasons getting messed up here on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am waiting for the cold, though. I love. I am a cold person. I love the cold. I can't take the heat. So hopefully it will finally become winter at some point. I'm hoping it just doesn't wait till like June next year to become winter. <laughs> exactly. No, I think we're we're actually dipping into frost every every night now, more or less. So it's getting cold up here in the north of Norway. Mm -hmm. What for people watching? What's the time zone difference right now? Well, I'm on uh, GMT plus two, which means that I'm actually six hours ahead of you, six okay. hours ahead of uh, EST. All right. But yeah, we certainly have a lot to talk about. And for the chat joining us, if you have any questions about Skull, uh, modern retro design, RPGs, anything like that, uh, feel free to leave those comments and we'll get to them as they show up. But, uh, like I said a few minutes ago, it's a pleasure to have you on. So, to begin with, since this is your first time on the cast out, could you talk a little bit about your background, as well as what is Scold Against the Black Priory? Um, so, I have, uh, you know, my educational background is mostly outside of IT, and I don't work in IT or game development at all mm -hmm. uh, in my day job. But um, I've been doing it on the side as a hobby for a lot for, um and maybe 10 years now, and uh, and also doing some freelance development and coding. I really enjoy working in uh, my programming. I enjoy coding and enjoy making things. So, so um, years ago, I started to think about uh, really going the full distance and, uh, and actually publishing a game, and that's uh, going to be called against the back against the Black Priory, mm -hmm. which is. Uh, style, 8-bit style RPG uh, made obviously in a modern engine and for modern platforms but um, it's heavily inspired by games such as the Magic Candle series, uh, the early Ultima games uh, the Gold Box series I grew up with myself and games that I really, really still enjoy playing um, but I find I have um, for all of the uh, the really old games so uh, to make my own <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how long have you been working on Skull? You know, it's one of those projects where you 
on something and then it morphs into what it is today. So there's parts of Skull that's about maybe two years old, like uh, the Dialogue Tree engine. I originally started to make it as a, more like a game book thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just be able to make interactive fiction with it. Um, but then I realized I needed some graphics and then I realized I needed an overland map and then I needed an inventory system. And so <laughs> you just keep adding components to it and then you start seeing the outline of uh, what could feasibly become uh, um, a pretty good uh, tile-based, tile-turn-based uh, low-res RPG. Um, and that's so, sort of the fun part of working with RPGs. It's very modular. It lends itself very well to object-oriented programming where you write mm-hmm. component after component of the game and you just puzzle it together until it becomes uh, <laughs> something that's really fun to work with. It's like uh, building with bricks. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I guess uh, one yeah. thing to kind of uh, clarify then, so with Scold, like... I've spoken to a few developers who worked on kind of like old school games. I'm trying to pull up a few of their names now while you were describing it. Like, is Skull being built with like an old school engine? Or are you actually like using like a modern engine and kind of going for uh, making it look like a classic game? Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, it's the latter. Um, okay. Skull is, Skull is uh, I use, I use um, Unity. Okay. For for most of the game, but the, or for a part of the game. I use uh, the draw pipeline, the render pipeline of Unity and the cross-compiler, but the scrolled engine is written in C-sharp, and it's okay. uh, it's pretty okay. self-contained. It's just uh, there is a small Unity wrapper around the engine, mm-hmm. so it could uh, ostensibly be, be run from another development that... Uh, that uh, from another uh, environment that understands C-sharp, but... Uh, but for now, I'm using Unity for the cross-compiler. So, so there is, um, I mean, the the, re- the look and the feel of Scald. It's um, it's uh, an artistic choice, and it's a you know, it's a pragmatic choice as well, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because working in low res, because I'm a solo developer, I'm the only one doing this. Uh, even though I have some awesome freelancers, I'm I'm pretty much uh, on my own in this project. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if this game was going to get made, there is no way I could do it with high resolution graphics. It would <laughs> cost too much and it would be too time consuming. So there's definitely something to be said for designing within constraints when working with it, with um with a game like this. Absolutely. 16 colors, it makes it so much easier to animate. You like to make tiles. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just looking up, I spoke with Mark from 6502 Workshop, like on a recording yeah. cast, and he's making the game Nox Arceus, and that game is just literally being made on Apple II hardware, and yeah, then it's going to be ported to modern computers. It's a whole other ball game. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really impressed with the, you know, with the how hardcore you have to be to to go all in and make spending so much time making a game for uh, for an Apple II computer. That's really, really, you have to really love it to do something like that. And I think Mark does. He's uh, he's an awesome guy, and he's really, really interesting to talk to because he's so uh, he's so into it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he has a lot of uh, excellent insights in doing it. So I have to say I'm super lucky because I have a game I can sell on mobile platforms if I want to, you know, mm-hmm. and it's uh, on the business side. It's, uh, it's a lot easier to work with a modern framework, but I have a lot of respect and really, really impressed with uh, yeah. how Mark and his team is working. Yeah. yeah. And when that recorded cast of Mark goes up, I think my programmer followers don't have a field day listening to him describe what it's like to be exactly. making a game on the Apple II. 
Exactly, exactly. You know, I don't do assembly uh, programming myself, but I really, really want to get into it after getting to know Mark. He's so passionate about it and he's so, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. his enthusiasm is infectious, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting back to Scold, so you said that you've been kind of working on it on and off for about two years. Is that right? Or has it been longer? Years, I think now. Yeah. yeah, the game is such that it could easily have another graphical expression than it does. It could be uh, it could be a dungeon crawl, or it could be in 3D. It could have high resolution graphics, um, and also that's also part of the big strength of like the Skull project for me because uh, the engine is very very reusable, either mm-hmm. parts of it or all of it. So it's very easy to reskin to make uh, another RPG that looks. Uh, Mm-hmm. but that maybe looks completely different and plays different. So and that's also been why I've been going so all in on it because uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, pretty neat little uh, pragmatic decisions built into the design of the project, mm-hmm. even though it's also very much a passion project for me. Really, really, mm-hmm. I really love the game. I love working on it, but um, it feels easier to uh, to take so much time away from, from doing other things when you know that you have... Uh, a project that could be, uh, that could, uh, I, you know, it's not going to make me quit my day job, but I could definitely milk the project for years to come with uh, different iterations of either the, the Scald franchise or doing something completely different with yeah. the engine. Yeah. That's really rewarding. And as you said a few minutes ago, with this kind of RPG design, it is very much designed to be modular like that. If you want to make a new story or a new universe, you already have the engine kind of in place. Yeah, to kind absolutely. Of do something else with it. I've been really having uh, like uh, the the next project I'm going to do whenever I do a hobby project with the Scald engine and not Scald against the Black Priory is probably going to be a roguelike with the engine, <laughs> just to see how it would play as a roguelike, mm-hmm. because um, it has all the features of it, and with some tweaking, it could be uh, it probably could be just as well uh, a pretty good roguelike roguelike. So uh, that would be a fun little side project to do, just to. Engine a bit. All right. So, in terms of the design of Skull, like, uh, what kind of, like, I think you may have mentioned this a few minutes ago, what kind of RPGs, like, were, like, inspired you to make it? Uh, I was a really, really big fan of the Magic Candle series, actually. That's, uh, that was a huge part of the inspiration for me. Um, and oddly enough, uh, if, did you play the series yourself? No, uh, the uh, CRPG genre is one that I didn't quite get into back in the old days. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's an obscure number four in the Magic Handle series. It's an obscure prequel called Bloodstone, and I played it to bits when I was younger. So that's a really happy childhood memory, and it looks a bit like uh, like Skull. You can definitely see a lot of the uh, influences there. I also really enjoyed the uh, Wasteland One. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Bard Tale series, and there's a lot of that in there as well. Wasteland One is actually, uh, if you reskin Skull to a post-apocalyptic uh, game, uh, the game it would feel the most similar to, if you look past the fantasy uh, mm-hmm. and the fantasy look of the game. So that was a big influence as well. Um, I really liked those Western RPGs; those were big uh, with me. I never was never a fan of uh, JRPGs, <laughs> but Western RPGs was. Uh, yeah, so, mm-hmm. and a lot of it shines through, I think, with Scald. The old uh, JRPG versus CRPG conversation, that's another hour <laughs> we could add on to this cast easily. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm touching it with a 10-foot pole. I think I'll <laughs> disenfranchise some of my fans. <laughs> Fan, needless to say, I'm not. <laughs> <clears throat> so I guess um, you mentioned this earlier, but I know uh, one of my uh, 
uh, one of my followers, Shrakenet, says as well, like, what inspired you to make Skull? Like, why, what kind of led you to making this game to begin with? That's a good question. Um, I think game development is, uh, it's become a hobby that I get for gaming enjoy doing game development i think it's really fun to do uh you know there's something with seeing the land rise from the water so to speak you know when you everything comes together and it starts working it's incredibly satisfying and it's so multidisciplinary as well even if you either if you do um yourself if you do the art yourself it's really rewarding and also if you get to work with some really really awesome people uh, if you use freelancers or have uh, partners who help you with art and music that's also really really fun mm-hmm. um, seeing your vision come together so so it's uh, i mean that alone is reason enough to do game development but i also think there's also uh, an aspect of uh, very rural part of norway and i think uh, a hobby like gaming and game development it's you, you, all you need is a computer. You can basically live in the forest or on the mountain somewhere, but you can still be part of this awesome network and do something that's environmental impact. You know, there is no physical goods being shipped yeah. to detain someone for hundreds of hours, you know, and think of all the joy and comfort it brings to people in a world that's kind of like, uh, you know, I think people need something to... Uh, yeah, to make them feel good. And I think yeah. games are pretty awesome at doing that. I think at some point, that may be where I move next, is like moving to the mountains somewhere, away from civilization. I can do all yeah, my exactly. videos and interviews that way. No one will ever find me in real life. <laughs> Basically, my uh, my whole motivation for doing game development. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, one question I always like to ask when we have international guests on, what is kind of like the state of like the indie game scene? in Norway right now? Are there any, like, notable studios or other games people may have heard of? I think probably the most, the biggest Norwegian toast, but the biggest uh, or most internationally known Norwegian game studio is Funcom. They did Age of Conan and World of Darkness, Mm -hmm. for instance. They did a lot of uh, MMOs. And uh, there is is definitely an indie scene in Norway as well, uh, called Alchemy Studios. They did uh, Owlboy, if you played that. It was an indie platformer. Those were Norwegian. Um, and there's a bunch of other Norwegian games as well. There is definitely a game scene in Norway, but Norway is kind of strange because of in Norway. Uh, and so, more games if you want to make a living in Norway because pay what they pay without having Norwegian wages. And Norway is very expensive to live in in terms of housing and everything. So, so it's difficult, I think, to as an indie game developer in Norway doing only game development mm-hmm. um, you either have to uh, diversify a bit or some uh, um, government projects to support uh, it's a very typically Norwegian thing that you have government support for <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, so there are grants you can apply for and things like that and I think that's, uh, that's definitely uh, an important part of being a game developer in Norway I think it would be hard for people to do it full time without uh, yeah. some support, at least in a period of their startup. So, so Norway is a strange beast in in that sense. And also, I get the impression I live out in the boonies myself, and I also get the impression that a lot of the game developer community in Norway is, I mean, like it's anywhere, it's centralized around the bigger cities in Norway. But mm-hmm. um, it is in Norway, so that means that there are only a few clusters where there's probably some activity. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think Norway is, Norway is definitely not in the forefront of game development or indie game development. It has a uh, ways to go, I think, but there are some really, really talented people here at, 
absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of potential, but um, yeah. or, uh, some things that makes the market hard to break into if you're in the region, mm-hmm. especially, I would say. Yeah, like over here on the East Coast, like outside, like again, like the major areas like New York, like there really aren't like too many like notable game development scenes here. Like I've been keeping my eye out here in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and it's still very much like small times here. And exactly. And I know with uh, Canada, they also have, I think, a government fund or something for game developer game developers or art. And yet we still, I don't think we have anything like that here in the U.S. That would be amazing if we get that at some point. But yeah, it's definitely hard, or it does feel like it's on the harder side It when you're in kind of like a remote area. But like we were just saying, like the beauty at least of the independence or just game development is that thanks to the internet and, you know, what we're doing here with like virtual offices and cloud stuff, we can make games, you know, anywhere in the world now. And I think that's that's kind of a I think that's a really fascinating thought because I don't just live outside of a town. I live in a very I live in the Norwegian equivalent of northern Alaska, pretty mm-hmm. much in the Arctic part of Norway, and uh, it's pretty far to the biggest uh, to the next big city. But still, there's still this idea that for game development because housing costs are low, office mm. places are cheap, there are tax incentives for living in this part of Norway. You could definitely run a studio out somewhere like this because you don't necessarily need to be surrounded by uh, as long as you get people to come and work in your studio, you don't need to have uh, another studio mm-hmm. just across the street. That's not a prerequisite. You can do everything by internet and just have a few people in-house uh, to run your studio. So I think there's a huge potential for uh, development or IT in general for uh, rural areas. I think that's to explore further. Absolutely. And I guess uh, getting back to kind of Skull's design and such, I guess what I guess what led you to making Skull like is Skull like your first like full major game project or have you worked on smaller titles or other games before? Yeah, I've done a lot of uh, smaller games on Game Jolt and things like that. Um, you know, toy games basically small free games so this is definitely the first big project um but at the same time i've been i've been dabbling in game development for a long time and i i do some work in you know i have a background also i do project management and things like that so it's not really a big leap um there's a lot of uh, a lot of moving pieces but at the same time i think if you keep your uh, you know, if you just stay focused and you avoid things like feature creep or overindulging in graphics and doing things like that, it's absolutely doable. And it's been a it's been a really really interesting uh, project so far. Um, and uh, I think I, you know I learned a lot from doing it. Uh, both that it's uh, it's been going much better than I dared hope so far in terms of yeah you know managing the project. Uh, mm-hmm. But also there's a lot of things that you didn't think of before you start. Yeah. It's really, it's a big undertaking to do something like this. Mm-hmm. And especially to do it where you have a steady rate of progression, where you commit pretty much to a deadline. I've said that my deadline is, uh, my release date for, for um, devices is uh, uh, June, July of 2020. Keep that. But that means being really, really disciplined and uh, also being uh, strict with how you prioritize both your time and, you know, the, the rate of feature implementation and the... Um, because it, there, you know, you have so much rope to hang yourself with 
doing something like this. And especially when you get Kickstarter money as well, it's really uh, you have a loaded gun. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> for sure with that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so you really, really just need to take it one step at a time and just really think things through. But if you do, it's more manageable than you would think. Mm-hmm. My experience so far. And if we have time near the end, we'll talk more about the Kickstarter and kind of some of the work that went into that for that one of our cool. topics. But uh, getting, but in terms of Skull's like design itself, like for people watching, like what is like the general gameplay going to be about? So Skull is what we call a tile and turn-based RPG. This means that it's uh, yeah, turn-based is uh, is a given. But uh, the game world is divided up into tiles of 16 by 16 pixels, and you move one tile at a time. Like, um, like uh, yeah, like the early Ultima games, for instance, and uh, like most roguelikes, it looks a bit like that. And uh, um, the low fidelity as well. It uses a 16-color palette, which is uh, from the Commodore 64. So it looks, on the surface level, it looks a lot like a, an old Commodore 64 game. But it takes some liberty with how, how it uses the color. It does things that the Commodore couldn't. It has more colors per per 8x8. Uh, I, I use any number of colors, whereas the Commodore 64 could only use one color, I think, per okay something like that so so there's there's absolutely some restrictions that i don't adhere to but uh but it's um it's more of a yeah, yeah a retro clone maybe or something like that it's <laughs> um yeah and so the the game will see you uh, travel across this pretty big game world the game can get pretty big when you have uh, when it's tile based because it's so it's it has such a small memory imprint it's so easy to render and uh, you lead a party of uh, between one and six characters across this uh, dark pretty dark and grim uh, fantasy game world um hope for the game to be uh, heavy um to have a lot of text in it and this tiny little or this little choose your own adventure sequences and lots of dialogue and um mm-hmm. be pretty reactive i think um or, i hope so uh, and it's looking good so far looking really good so far okay. so uh, yeah i guess uh, like looking at the art for the game like with titles like this, especially with like the whole modern retro feel to it like, were there, like, other, like, aesthetics or other things you were thinking about with Skull? Or did you know very much, like, right away, like, this kind of look you wanted for the game? Uh, yeah, both yeah, both yes and no, because I very quickly landed on the tile-based design. And then it was a question of how big do you make the tiles? What colors do you have? Uh, and I quickly realized that uh, 16 by 16 is a very manageable tile size, because that means that I could do a lot of the art myself. <laughs> which is actually a big thing. It's a bigger thing than you would think because there are thousands of tiles in a game like this. Yeah. 32 by 32 pixels, they take four times as much uh, big and they take more than four times as long to make. Uh, whereas when they're very small, they're a lot easier to make. And then it's also that also narrows it down and you realize that if I have fewer colors, it makes it a lot easier to uh, designer choose all the colors I want. It doesn't really look <laughs> as, as good. Mm-hmm. And so then I looked through different color palettes and I saw that the Commodore 64 uh, definitely it struck a chord with me because I used to play games that looked like that. And um, things sort of uh, played out by itself from there because then you have some uh, feeds back into the, to the retro look and everything came together very well when I realized that the Commodore 64 palette was uh, to go for with this game. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like I said earlier, it's purely an artistic choice. I could have used any number of colors or any kind of resolution if I wanted to. But uh, 
But for me, that uh, it really spiked my creativity, at least. And uh, fans reacted to it very well. I had the... I was very active on Twitter at the time, and you, you sort of you quickly get a feel for uh, for work when you post it on Twitter. That's what really one of the mm-hmm. social media get instant feedback, yep. and uh, people really reacted well to it, and that uh, made me think I was on the right track. And obviously, I was because the Kickstarter was a huge success, and people are very enthusiastic for the game. So uh, I found a lot of love in the the Ultima community, which is still surprisingly uh, really really awesome community. And uh, yeah, yeah, and we certainly know when it comes to CRPG design, there are a lot of old school fans out there, and we definitely saw this with with many of the Kickstarter projects that came out over this decade. Um, what was it? I think Pillars of Eternity was one. Wasteland got a reboot or another sequel. And I'm sure for the audience watching, you guys probably know more than I do of some of the other major Kickstarter projects. Uh, um, Josh Sawyer from Obsidian Studio, he uh, they made Pillars of Eternity, yeah. among others. I think he has a very good quote where he said that uh, the the publishers, no, sorry, the audience didn't uh, abandon the isometric RPGs, but the publishers did. Yeah. And I think that's that's true for a lot of genres. I think uh, it's, yes. they were left behind by technology, but not necessarily by the by the owners. Mm-hmm. So. I think that that leaves a lot of design space for uh, uh, the young, uh, developer. The survival horror genre is right now crying in the corner as we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I think the same goes actually for tile-based RPGs because there is things uh-huh. about playing. I know you're a huge roguelike fan, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of the same things with tile-based RPGs as well because it's a game that you can... You can do a few moves. You can, you know, you can have the game running besides doing something else. The game doesn't advance until you do. There's kind of this sun-like thing with just one more move, one more move. Um, I think I think everything through really, really appeals to a lot of people. It really appeals to me, and so uh, that was a huge uh, part of why I decided to do this genre because I really, really wanted to play a game like that, and I realized that there were very few games uh, being made that I that I wanted to play. Uh, roguelikes, roguelikes have been almost bigger than the like the the classical CRPG genre in the tile based tile uh, niche. But finding uh, RPGs that are like that, where you have like tile and turn-based movement, it's uh, from the last uh, years. It's not so common, I think. At least less than you would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, like we've seen so many roguelites, likes, uh, any other examples you can think of that just kind of like blew up. Whether they're using modern graphics or again the old school tile-based or just pixelated graphics. Uh-oh. Okay. I think I lost so, your sound. Okay. Can you still hear me? Yeah, you're starting to break up a little bit. We're getting like some uh, latency, I think. Should we try to um, good connection? I can see. Uh, let's see if it stays. May just be a little hiccup. Sure. Right. Sure. And uh, for the audience watching, if it starts to get too bad, let me know, and we'll switch things over, and we'll just have an image uh, for Al there. But yeah. Um, getting back to the topic, yeah, like. And I think this will actually be a good segue into talking more about kind of like modern retro design as well. Like with Skull, as we were talking about this before the cast, and I think on our messages, that again, when you look at Skull, 
it is a looks very much like a game from the 8-bit era, Commodore 64, etc. But yeah. there's definitely that challenge of making something that, yes, it looks and emulates that feel, but it should still be playable to modern audiences. And that Ooh. is definitely like that very tough line for a lot of developers to get around. So with Skull in particular, like, I guess, have you done anything in terms of, I guess, modern day elements or playability or anything like that to make it appealing to somebody who hasn't grown up playing those games? Or like, have you done like any research on that end? Yeah, I have. Um, and the way I work with Skull now is that I've, I've had a pretty extensive uh going on now for some for a few weeks with uh, backers from the Kickstarter and followers on the Discord, which has so they are giving me feedback while I work. I have my own background as a CRPG player that sort of informs because I also I'm making a game that I would like to play, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I try to communicate a lot with both with the community and, and the game has been very it's been tested. But you know a lot of people they don't they don't share their game until they're far down the process, but mm-hmm. I haven't had that kind of process with Scald. So I keep getting feedback all the time, and I, I really, really try to look for things. that where are the, Where's the friction in the game? Where's the things that will make people not want to play the game? Because, because you really, really have to think about it today. Uh, and I think one of the big differences now versus 30 years ago is that you have, a, have to be um, a lot more uh, respectful of people's time, I think. You could have, uh, you could have these... Uh, uh, not allowing people to save where and whenever they wanted to, or uh, um, having things that uh, you know, having much more grind in the game, having uh, big, uh, very big, very trashy dungeons that would make uh, just to pad the, the runtime of the game. And I think that's uh, that's really, really off-putting to a lot of mm-hmm. because people might be might want to sit down and play the game for twenty minutes, and that might be all the time they have. And that's really, really, a, you know, a point of feedback I've been getting. But at the same time, there's also that game that's going to look like it was made 30 years ago. So there is a limit to how far I will go with conceivable modern convenience in terms <laughs> of uh, UI, for instance. Uh, and so it's it's this sorting almost where you have to consider, am I throwing the baby out with the bathwater experience yeah. of playing an old game? Or is this, what's the cost benefit of cutting this feature or, or modernizing this feature? Auto mapping is a big thing in mm. CRPGs. A lot of CRPGs didn't auto map for you, so you had to map. Mm. Uh, I have auto map because that's the exact kind of feature where most people don't have time to, to sit and draw their own maps. But there are some people who really, you know, who really like that and who's actually been like, yeah, is it possible to turn off that feature? In the game, perfect example of uh, weighing. Uh, okay, is so auto mapping is that uh, that in a e or will you alienate more people by cutting it? It's a really interesting design challenge, but it's been really really fun so far. I'm glad I have the community I have. They yeah. offer a lot of and like that. Like right in of itself is a very like interesting challenge and. It goes with that very tough conversation around modern retro design. Because as you're running into it, I'm sure as the other developers I've spoken to have also, that there's that fine line between, I want to make a game that is from, you know, the NES era or the Apple II or anything like that. But conversely, I need to think about, if I want this game to sell, if I want to reach an audience... 
Like, do I have modern conveniences? Conveniences? Do I change this design? And if so, how far do I go before it's not even you know the same game or that style that I wanted to make in the first place? Exactly. So that's a really, really interesting question. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people take far too lightly, a lot of people who try to make retro games, they take too far, far too lightly on that. And they're too modern conveniences. And it, it, it ends up being sort of, because when you're making a retro game, having a classical, classically designed chair or a, an old car or something like that, if, if you suddenly have an, if you have a beautiful old car from the fifties, but then you put a modern GPS in it and people pick up on it and their consumers pick up on it, even if they're not really able to put the finger on it, they do pick up on it. And like also a big, uh, a big red flag for me is when people try to make retro RPGs or retro games of any kind and they have a very pixelated graphics, graphics, but then there is an element on the screen that's higher resolution would indicate that should be possible. If you understand what I mean. Yeah. That really, really annoys me because it, uh, and I think it annoys a lot of other, it, it annoys consumers as well. And they might not even realize why, but it looks sloppy. And the same goes for, uh, for feature design, I think. It really, really goes for that as well. People will pick up on things like that. Yeah. And, and uh, like, that's something that I've noticed a lot over this decade playing a lot of games while my voice is about to go. <coughs> Sorry about that. But it's something that I've picked up as well when playing a lot of metro, a modern retro design games from developers where, in a way, it feels worse than the games that they were trying to emulate in the first case. Like, if I, like, uh, Shark mentioned this earlier about how I play a lot of platformers, and I have played yeah. a whole mess of indie 2D platformers in the last nine years. And. If I play a game that you design in 2018 or 2019 that's supposed to emulate a game from 1991 and it plays worse than those games, <laughs> then it's like, you know, like, you know, something is not connecting here. You know, we're trying to, you know, the connection's not being made. And exactly. It is tough like that when we're talking about these games because, as you said, like there are developers out there that when we say modern retro, they will, you know, adhere to it almost 100%. You know, I'm going to have screen flickering. I'm going to purposely yeah, have exactly. enemies, you know, just spawn in endlessly. Like there's no real attempt or even no real concessions made for trying to have elements from today or making things more appealing. And yeah. Like we said, it's a tough decision to be. It's a tough decision to make. Do because on one hand, they are making a game from 1989 or 1991, but do a lot of people want to play a game from that era? You know, warts and all. Yeah, that's the question. Question, and of course, it has an impact on the. Uh, definitely makes it a niche product, and, and my game is absolutely a niche product. But um, I think it's. Um, it has the potential to attract a, a bit of a larger audience, but uh, my core uh, audience is definitely uh, in this kind of game. And I think one of the strange things is actually that a game like uh, I had this in mind when I designed Skull, it's really, really well suited, I think, for uh, this. <laughs> I, I used to play a lot of Gurk. Did you play Gurk on. Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> it looks like. Um, version of Scald, almost, <laughs> I would say, but it's a really, it's a really fun little game where you, uh, it's a tile-based RP, and uh, it plays so well on the Android, because, or on the, or on your phone, because you can, uh, 
you can pick it up while you're sitting on the bus and you can play a few moves and then you can pick so playing games like that on my smart devices and even though Scald is definitely being developed for PC or or for desktop devices uh, I'm absolutely going to port it to uh, to handheld devices as well and I think that's just a huge upside of working within that genre because mm-hmm. by accident it plays well on phones as well <laughs> or yeah. tablets yeah. yeah so but yeah getting back to your uh, to the original discussion about uh, about feature design and games like this it's uh, it's a tricky thing. It definitely is. And uh, I think it also, you know, you could say that in some cases it might add some restrictions on your business model for the game as well. Uh, I think if you do things like uh, add things like in-app purchases, um, mm-hmm. that, that would also be uh, dissonant for players of games like this. I think people who buy games like this, they really prefer to pay to buy the game in one go, pay for it, have it delivered, and then not having to pay more for it. And that might not necessarily make me any more money. But at the same time, I think it really uh, it improves uh, confidence in the in the brand I am, in some sense. It's also a balancing act, I think. I am just waiting for a modern retro game to be released that has loot boxes in it. You know, 8-bit uh, resolution <laughs> loot box scenes in a game. <laughs> I don't know that would be amazing or just uh, depressing to see. <laughs> You know, it would be so easy to add loot boxes to Skull. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I think it would also... Uh, I would have no more uh, no more users on my Discord tomorrow mm-hmm. if I did. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So you have to keep it at arm's length. But I think also, I you know, I'm never going to do things like that to, to this project at least. But I would definitely be more willing to have to look into different business models when I launch the game on on uh, on handheld devices and phones. I could definitely do something like publish the game for free and then have, have advertisement in it or something like that. But for for laptops or for desktop devices, the experience has to be the experience of playing a game 30 years ago, I think. Uh, and then uh, then uh, the uh, sort of the the fact that you can get it on the phone as well, that's supplementary to that experience. But the experience is buying the game, installing the game, and playing the game on your computer. That's sort of uh, a core, uh, the sign pillar of the of the core. Now of the Scald project, I think, for me. So that's interesting as well. And um, I don't know why I feel that way, but I think I, I would definitely take more allowances with, uh, with uh, the iPhone port, for instance, mm-hmm. than with the desktop version. And um, I think some of my favorite examples of kind of like modern retro games would be those that kind of, again, I think they go like the best of both worlds. It's one part of the retro design, but they do have modern elements or maybe a little bit uh, more have those concessions, such as uh, Yacht Club Games, uh, Joy Mashers, uh, or sorry, Joy, Joy Masher, Locomolito is a really good example as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And That's a great example. And I think, like, those kinds of games work the best because it's not only just, like, a high-quality classic game, but mm. it can still be enjoyed by a modern audience. Mm, absolutely. And that's, that's, what it, that's what's interesting with going back and revisiting games that you enjoyed while you were younger. It's realizing how much good design went into a lot of those games. I think that's sort of the problem with some developers when they make 
uh, they try to make uh, retro remakes. They they take it as a carte blanche that if the if the graphics look old fashioned, then we don't really have to have good gameplay as well. We can take allowances <laughs> with the game, you know. And that's not really the case at all. I think it almost it makes it more important to uh, really be to really really design the game well. And I think it shows in games like, uh, for instance, Locomalito, I think, which is a is a pretty good game. And uh, it has, yeah, I wouldn't say that it has. Uh, retro graphics but still um that's interesting it's interesting to sort of dissect games that you used to love when you were younger and look into what made this game good why was this game so good what's the genius behind this game and there's a lot of wisdom to take away from that i think in modern game development Mm -hmm, for sure and again especially when you're designing a game around this kind of modern retro design that you're not dealing with a lot of, I guess, the fluff or fat in a AAA game. Like, you don't have fully animated cutscenes. You don't have, you know, uh, post-content support or, you know, crazy DLC and things like that. You really need to give a very pure experience that somebody is going to enjoy. And it's even harder by the fact that when you're dealing with something that's retro like this, you know, someone's going to look at right away and... If you don't get them quickly, they're just going to think, oh, you know, why should I play this game? You know, I have all these other titles I can go to. It comes down to things like having rewarding game loops and, mm-hmm. you know, things that, that isn't really, that has to do with the satisfaction of playing the game. Because how do you make someone play a game that looks like 30 years ago in 1919, uh, 1919 and you make them play the game for 100 hours? How, how do you, <laughs> it's a tall task, I think, but it's doable. Absolutely. I think so. So, uh, but it's a really, really interesting, uh, and I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that I'm going to hit that mark with Scald, but I would really like to, it's a journey towards that goal, I would say. That, you know, maybe the sequel will make it, or maybe the third game down the line. Um, role-playing games are, uh, role-playing games are an interesting beast because they have this really, really satisfying built into it. So you get a lot of, you get a lot for free the role-playing games, I think. And you just have to leverage that in a way that makes it interesting to keep playing it for a long time, either by adding scripted story content or making interesting game systems or an interesting setting with some environmental storytelling that really makes people want to keep exploring it, uh, replay value somehow by maybe having different character builds. Rewarding, I think, with the RPG genre. I think I'm lucky to work in that genre. It's very fun. If you love RPGs. And by getting back or with more about this kind of modern retro design and the modern retro market, like, (coughs) excuse me, that I think, as we said, like a lot of people assume that this is easy or that this is quote unquote easier than designing a game for modern audiences. And I, I don't think I would necessarily agree with that. As we said, there are a lot of poor examples of modern retro games. And it seems like there's a lot more work that goes into this market than I think a lot of people realize. Why would it be... I mean, when you think about it analytically, why would it be easier? Because in terms of game experience or player experience, what goes on under the hood is the same, no matter how the the graphics look. If you took a game that's... uh, Warcraft and you replaced uh, the, the 3D models with 2D models, it would still have uh, the same addictive game loop built into it, I think, and mm-hmm. it would take the same amount of design to make something like that appealing. And there is no, or to put it in another way, there's no limit to how much um, craft and intelligence and analysis you can put into making your game as good as 
possible, no matter how simple the game is. And and by all means, you know, a, a game like Skull, it looks simple, but it's it's not a it's a very complex beast. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is. So I don't really think uh, it's easier to design a game like this. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess this is kind of a preview when I have my podcast with Mark up. But one thing that I really liked, or one good takeaway that he had about designing a game for uh, Knox Arcade for the Apple II, was that in terms of looking at modern features or modern concessions, he basically came to this idea of what could be the iteration of this genre if people were still making games on that platform. And that's kind of like where he took his design, so that while it is definitely a classic game he's still thinking about kind of like i guess it's kind of like a retro future kind of take on that genre and i thought that was Absolutely. really fascinating in terms of its design yeah yeah he puts it very well when he says it like that because it's sort of an extrapolation of uh, what would apple II games look like if uh, if you were still using Apple IIs. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Uh, and he has, uh, that's sort of one of the luxuries on working with the original hardware because you get a lot of, um, um, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, doing it on actual hardware. That's one of the things I have to be a bit careful with yeah. when I'm work- since I'm working with a very modern engine because there is no, there's no limit to what you could put into this game. There, it, it's not really a challenge. The challenge is holding back in a way that's, uh, that's, that makes the game seem, um, seem legit without seeming like it's pandering too much to nostalgia, if you understand. So, uh, it's a different, it's a different balancing act. But, um, yeah, that's a really, really interesting way of thinking of, uh, mm-hmm. retro game, the modern retro game design. Really, really interesting. And, uh, Keeping with the Amon Retro discussion, uh, BDR in chat asked um, ask about how the audience who plays the title game he makes finds his stuff, and he kind of feels like retro is too broad and not really niching. So I guess, uh, what do you think about that? I guess in terms of like, kind of like the appeal of retro games these days? Um... Part of that question remains. Uh, um, a lot of people who play the game, play the game at this stage, is uh, people who backed on the Kickstarter are um, people who played games that looked like this 20 and 30 years ago. So for them, I think it has uh, a lot of appeal because it feels like, oh, that's kind of like uh, my, uh, I would say, my basic design pillar is that the way the game plays is the way we have a romanticized idea of how these games they didn't they they were a bit uh, rougher around the edges than this <laughs> game is but we don't remember that we remember it as really really well and the graphics being a lot more rich than they actually were and uh, that's kind of the thing I'm trying to emulate with this game I'm trying to emulate your uh, rosy memory of how it used to feel to play uh, games like this in the early 90s and so I think that strikes a chord with people who used to play the game uh, back in the day. I'm yet to release the game to a broader audience who didn't play games back then and so my uh, I think um, it will be interesting to see if it has any appeal at all or any penetration at all in the market of younger gamers gamers, for instance um, understanding with uh, keep true to the genre that there is uh, there is a lot of uh, you know you would say we're horribly outdated in terms of for instance UI things like that today because we've come so far in understanding what makes for a good uh, user experience and though I, I try to incorporate as much as possible of it there are some things that I also feel stylistically should be the way they were and people have a um, 
Yeah, I think people have uh, been very understanding so far and really enjoyed. Uh, I've been getting very good feedback, I would have to say, honestly, mm-hmm. so far. And that's uh, it's a dangerous. It's dangerous to get too comfortable with that, and the game still needs a lot of polish. But um, people have been very positive so far, and it's been a really. I'm really glad I showed people the game as early as I did. Um, interestingly, few people have, uh, or actually, I don't think I've gotten a single comment from uh, a playtester so far that's been sort of uh, put off by how old-fashioned the game is. And I think, I think, oh, go ahead. And I, I think there's, I think there's, uh, I spent a lot of time cutting out things that uh, that I, that had you end up for a lot or. You know, going through menus a lot. There's a lot of very small things that really makes the game flow a lot quicker. Uh, a lot of the UI is contextual. So the, the moment you have something to interact with, you get the prompt to interact with that thing. You don't have to, you know, with the older games, you had to try and talk to it. You had to try and pick it up. You had to try and open it, you know, and you had to like go through all the objects in the scene and do things like that. And that really slowed down gameplay, especially game and there was a lot of uh, memorizing what different keys did on the keyboard (laughs) that's i I removed all of that from the game uh if you walk up to uh to a cat we'll (laughs) say pet and you can press the button and you will pet the cat you know it's uh and that's kind of a modern design thing but and it's you don't really notice that it's there if you don't think about it but it really really simplifies gameplay and the flow of the game and that's sort of the thing it's having allowing the player to make interesting decision don't let there be too much time between each time the player makes interesting decisions in the game that really makes for a good uh, role-playing game i think and it doesn't have to be a big decision but it should be okay here's something should i interact with it and then you shouldn't have to be able to you, you shouldn't be required to spend time looking through all the key combinations on your keyboard, trying to find out how to interact with that object. And I think that is a really good point, again, about trying to balance that line between making a modern retro game and also trying to make something that's appealing. Because as you said a minute ago, like a lot of people remember the good retro games, but there's a lot of bad back then. For my audience, when we do our retro nights, you've seen me play games like... uh, Friday the 13 and Jaws and so many uh, uh, third-party uh, movie licensed platformers for the SNES and things like that. And a lot of these games do not hold up well. And I'm sure the same can be said of a lot of the older school CRPGs and even PC games as well. And uh, I'm sorry? No, just continue. I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> and it is hard, like we've said, when you're designing this retro game, or even just any game in general, to figure out, does this option add depth to my game, or am I just making it need- needlessly complicated? And there are a lot of people who have trouble squaring uh, squaring the circle, those two things. There are people out there who think that difficulty is automatically the sign of greatness, and it most certainly is not. But it's, as you said, like, Giving the player depth, giving them choices that, you know, make them feel like they're doing something is a big part of that. Having to, you know, look at your keyboard and figure out what key opens up my in- my inventory is not an example of a good choice there. I think uh, I think you have to remember that a lot of these, a lot of the older games, and that's that's probably just as true today. But, you know, they you would add padding and filling longer 
And uh, I think especially with old RPGs, if you play them, you'd be surprised at how much uh, there is to it. And I think there, you know, and also I think like uh, there's a clumsy user experience almost by design sometimes that it's almost part of the puzzle that you have to try and interact with every object in every conceivable way <laughs> to try and find. You know, it's it's there to pad the runtime of the game, I think. And uh, I, I've said that I really, I want my game to be... You know, I want the player to be able to finish my game in, in an hour or two if they want to, but them to want to play the game for, if you understand. That, I think, is more a more modern approach to to designing, especially a role-playing game in a big open world. You know, have that where you can you can basically walk up to the to the final boss and just finish the game almost instantly <laughs> if you want to. Uh, and if that's what, how you want to play the game, that's super fine by me. I don't want to force the player to spend 200 hours grinding in the game just to to finish it. And what you said about uh, you know about uh, how a lot of older games are really uh, picked back up. I've been replaying a lot of old CRPGs. I'm going to catch some flack for this probably, but um, you know, let's let's just do it. But I've been replaying a lot of old CRPGs, even those that really strongly inspired Scald. So many of those games, even though I played them a lot when I was younger, I can't get into them anymore for the life of me. Mm-hmm. I I really don't have the patience to sit there and memorize the <laughs> keyboard or to get back in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think as kind of a tangent, but I think it's related. We could even bring up kind of the rise and the change in the adventure game genre as well over the last twenty years. During like many people know the adventure genre as kind of the golden age of the late eighties and the nineties, and then as more developers try to copy and emulate that style in the early thousands. It just became a confusing mess for anyone but <laughs> the super hardcore, you know, the puzzle solving people. And the, mo- then, the moon logic puzzles. Yes. And then we d- really didn't see until maybe like this past decade, maybe a little bit alone than that, as developers are trying to again figure out that balance between making a great puzzle game but also a great kind of story and narrative. Like, one of my favorites would be a Wadget Eye with the uh, Blackwell series, Unavowed, and so on. And again, like, it's very hard, I think, or it's a very much a big challenge to figure out, you know, what did I like about these games? And what do I never want to see ever again exactly. in this genre? And then also that opens the question, if you are a designer, why was it in here originally? And what will be the consequence of taking it out of the game? And that's something you have to, you know, uh, keep asking yourself time and time again. Because and that adds a lot of insight. That's kind of part of the archaeology or the sociology of looking back at uh, at older games and trying to replicate what made them great, but not much else. And uh, you know, I really agree. Puzzle games that that's a that's a really good uh, example of that exact thing. You know, where you had these really really insane moon logic puzzles that drove people insane back in the day. And uh, maybe a baby you'd want to throw out with the bat bathwater, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, BDR ask in chat. Did you look at new popular CRPGs like Pillars of Eternity as kind of inspiration, or did you take anything from kind of the modern market with designing Scold? 
Absolutely, I did. There is a lot. Uh, there is a lot of modern RPG design in uh, in the game, uh, or at least I would say at this point the engine has been designed to allow for a lot of modern RPG design aspects in the Scald project. Uh, because the game isn't really isn't finished yet, so I can't say what's in it yet. But but the engine has been designed with that in mind. And one of the big things um, has been the way that. In old RPGs, you used to have, especially the ones that Skull looked like, you usually had the keyword-based dialogue where you had to ask every NPC name, job, they will tell you their job, mm-hmm. and so forth. Uh, and then you had dialogue three, trees. In a long time, dialogue trees were very uninteractive in, uh, in um, like the early uh, Baldur, Baldur's Gate 1, for instance. It was just a... Uh, you know, a very a dumb graph that you would navigate through and you would end up, there was no, there, at least apparently there was very little scripting in it and so forth. But I think the modern games, like um, the modern remakes of the symmetric RPG genres, like Pillars of Eternity, they do a lot of interesting things with the way they use the dialogue tree and the way the dialogue um, has a lot, it's not stateless anymore. It it uh, looks at your background, it looks at your personality, and the way you make choices actor develops very directly in the dialogue tree. I think that's something that, that I really want to at least have the ability to emulate in Scald. So a mm-hmm. powerful scripting system, although the game engine can be, the game logic can be accessed from scripts embedded in the dialogue of the game. So, um, and, and that's not, it's not a revolutionary feature at all. It's not, it's not like, it's not a big technical achievement, but there's a surprisingly big amount of games that don't do that. Uh, and I think that's really, really something that needs to be in, in, in an RPG to this. That's something I really, really enjoy with playing the Obsidian games. Fallout New Vegas uh, did it, uh, which is also by Obsidian Studios, and and uh, I really, really enjoy that. And so that's one of the things that I've sort of stolen from modern RPGs. And the same thing is actually the thing with the the uh, sort of the choose your own adventure sequences, things that they did in Pillars of Eternity, which is surprising how few people have done it before. Because uh, it's been many, many years since text started to be uh, many years we've been able to include an insane amount of text in a game. Uh, really reacted well, really positively to to like the choose your own adventure sequences and pillars of eternity. And and it's uh, in retrospect, it's strange that it for for so many years. It's strange that that's not part of the RPG genre the way we think of it because it really isn't. Mm-hmm. I would say. And I think it has something to do with the value of written words contra moving pictures. Um, gosh, we had that publishers abandoned the features, but players never wanted to. Players would have loved it, I think. But uh, it doesn't look sexy enough. But uh, it really works well, I think. it's. And um, Oscar and Chaz asking about, you know, why, do, why don't we see more uh, choose-your-own-adventure-book-styled games? And, yeah, like, again, it's one of those very weird things when you talk about these kinds of designs that, yeah. like, nobody makes them until somebody just flat-out says, you know what, I'm going to do it myself. And then what usually happens is then everybody starts copying that game when they see how well it did. Uh, Stardew Valley probably being one of the big examples of this decade of... Developer saying, I want a Harvest Moon style game for my computer. I made it, 
And now we're seeing all these other kind of farming sim and games like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, like the RPG genre, I think, is a very interesting one when you're trying to design it. Because there are so many of them that focus more on the storytelling side rather than on interesting game mechanics. And then there are those who go vice versa, you know, very generic story. But then they can create crazy systems like the Final Fantasy series have tried to, you know, skirt that or walk between that line many times. And it's always hard, I think, to know just, you know, what does the audience want for these games? And again, that even goes back to what we were just saying with, you know, what kind of elements do you want to keep from classic games? And when Mm -hmm. do you want to throw them out in favor of something new and modern? And I think that's that's a really interesting discussion, G-Design, which is sort of this, uh, this spectrum that goes from RPGs to or narrative-based, sandboxy open worlds. And on the other hand, you have these very linear RPGs. And, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a really interesting discussion. I think it really ties back into also the JRPG versus CRPG yeah. Uh, yeah. distinction, because I think one is definitely more prevalent in... Uh, genre has its own preference so so for scald i really wanted to to have a absolutely a big systemic game you can't overlay a lot of narrative onto it and that's also an interesting point because he asked about the uh, the game books one of the reasons that i think game books become a lot more popular now who have made a lot of money selling them on uh, on handheld devices they're really well suited for that but still it's not a huge genre and part of the reason is that when you make a game book from a branching tree, most um, uh, the simplest kind of implementation, uh, the, the size of the tree grows exponentially yep. the deeper yep. it goes. So you end up having a lot of content that doesn't get showed on each uh, playthrough. And so if you have only uh, if you have only just like a, a, a stateless tree that you move through, um, that's not really a very resource effective way of making a game. So, so for me at least, that's also part of the reason why I abandoned. Because, like I said, I started out making a game book, but that's a huge part of why I abandoned the game book. It's that I realized that if you overlay, if you lace the game book mm-hmm. with some other systemic elements, a map that you can freely freely move around on, and things like that, characters that have that have uh, you know that that aren't stateless, that remember things about you, that that belong to a faction that you can affect by interacting with the character and so forth. Then you you uh, it it makes it a lot easier to to use the content that you create for the game book because you can have the game book do different things than letting you choose left or right. You can ask itself, okay, you choose left, but here you'll meet some characters. What's your relationship to those characters depending on your actions earlier in the game? So so I think it's uh, and that's the things that's so strange with me because to me that sounds like a that sounds like something that should be more prevalent from earlier on, but it isn't, strangely, in a lot of games. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, like, uh, like with this, uh, like again, like the game bulk and the different choices is definitely a really good topic. And um, as you are talking about earlier in the cast, with um, roguelikes in general, like, that's another genre that also runs into that problem, that mm-hmm. if your game doesn't have enough variance in it, then somebody's going to get bored and tired of it very quickly. But... Yeah. If you kind of backload so much of it, most people may not even see all the variety. They may just see, oh, I play the game, I beat it, it's done, and then, you know, there's nothing else to it. But you could have had more multiple events, multiple situations that can show up in it. And 
it's very yeah. hard to can kind of convey, I guess, that kind of depth in these games. And especially when we talk about modern retro design. Like, again, mm-hmm. there are people out there like myself, who love these old school games. Like, again, I've played uh, All Was Awakening, uh, all the stuff by Joy Masher, Local Melito, etc. And then mm-hmm. there are people who look at these games, and the second they see like pixel graphics, they go, "This is some you know dumbed down game. I don't care. You know, yeah. give me Call of Duty or Mass <laughs> Effect or anything like that. Give me a game yeah, exactly. that has like a three million dollar <laughs> budget at minimum, kind of thing." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. No, I don't think I've seen a game called Cube. Although uh, there is a possible I may have played it and never and don't remember it these days. I've played way too many. Like, for myself, like, again, getting back to the whole CRPG, JRPG thing, I've just never been a fan of, like, open world style RPGs. Like, again, like, the Elder Scrolls series just never clicked for me. But I think part of that was... I grew up playing JRPGs, so I'm basically the opposite of you. I played the Final Fantasies, Chrono Trigger, uh, so many weird and niche games like that, that it's more about the systems than it is about this, you know, branching narrative and stuff like that. But even that genre has definitely seen a lot of upheaval over these past 10, 15 years. Like, I know they're still making, like, the Dragon Quest series. And, like, there are people who love that, and I just don't have any interest in playing them these days. Really? I, I just don't have the time, really, to play, like, an 80 to 100 hour long game like uh, Yeah, exactly, because that's part of the that's part of the, the charm, I would say, mm-hmm. with those games. If you're into it, it's that they're really long, and you can really just lose yourself in them and uh, but at the same time you know and i think at least at some point i think jrpgs and and the kind of crpgs that i tend towards they're really really different they're in fact so different that it's almost unfair to compare them i think because the experience of playing them is really really different i think uh, yeah the, the parts of your brain that it appeals to it's it's not the same for for those games you know it's uh, and um, as one other tangent when we talk about modern retro games we would definitely be doing a disservice. We didn't mention, of course, uh, Jeff Vogue of Spireweb Software, who's basically made his entire career on games from like 1993, 1994, and that aesthetic. I can't under I I can't uh, understate how big of an influence mm-hmm. Jeff Vogel's career has been on me. It's been uh, it's uh, it's really part of the reason why I uh, I chose to go with like with this genre, and there's a lot of aspects of my business model that is really developed uh, mm-hmm. from listening to Jeff Vogel talk about the way he runs his company, you know, being ultra lean and uh, yeah, he has a philosophy that I think is also a great guy to listen to. So, <laughs> I mean, if uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard about Jeff Vogel, you have some... Um, yeah, I did an interview <laughs> with him last month, just before Queen's Wish came up, and yeah, like, he is just hilariously insane to talk to some of the topics we came up with for that cast. <laughs> Uh-oh. Think L has frozen. Oh, are you still there? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, we'll see when we get him back, but here's the link to the Kickstarter mojo. Hello? Yep. Are you still there? Oh. Yeah, I'm still here. It's not game wisdom if we don't have at least one dropout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. I'm back. Yeah, I lost you after Queen's Wish. Um... After Queen's Wish. 
All right, not a problem. Let me, uh, to make things easier, I'll just use the image for Skull, because it may yeah. just be the bandwidth may not be able to handle Absolutely. All right. Yeah. But yeah, like, um, we did a whole podcast with Jeff Ogle just before Queen's Wish came out, and that was just hilarious to talk to him about topics and design. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a grumpy old uncle of game design. It's oh yeah, we really said awesome. that. I, we came up with the idea that we just have a cast of him ranting for an hour. I don't even need to say a word. Just have him rant about being an old developer. I just do that like for every developer comes on. Just like give you, I just get up and leave. You just rant for an hour about whatever the heck you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I would listen to uh, Jeff Wogel rant for an hour about being old and grumpy. Mm -hmm. That uh, sounds like an amazing podcast. Mm -hmm. Fridays with Uncle Jeff. There we go, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah, but I think he's um, he, he kind of... <laughs> He, uh, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek with a lot of the things he says, but there's really, really a lot of uh, wisdom in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you really should lend an ear to Jeff Vogel, especially if you're a new developer yeah. and uh, you're considering making uh, making a career in, in game development. And at least if your entryway is as an indie game developer, because it's, it's a really, really, really tough business to try and make it in. And most oh, yeah. of... People who try don't make it, and but I think you can if you do a lot of what Jeff has done. He's really, really, uh, you know, the compromise between between uh, you know pursuing something that you that you making something you really like to make. At least he used to like making it, and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and just like making a product that has the longest tail possible. I think that's really the big takeaway for from listening to Jeff, for me at least, you know, that these games, they are, at least role-playing games like this, they're kind of timeless in their design. People are playing them today because they don't really care about the graphics that much, or, mm -hmm. and they really want a gameplay that's... Uh, just like that, and and people will buy this game in ten years as well if it's uh, if it's popular. So uh, yeah, no, but anyway, Jeff Wogel, interesting guy, absolutely. Um, now uh, going back to Scold in terms of like its design development for a few minutes, and also as a quick time check, we are just over an hour and twenty into the cast. So yeah. we did set kind of a soft stop for around two hours. I. Chances are we may be coming close to that, but are you still good on time? No problem. Just go ahead. Okay. Uh, getting back to, like, with Scold, I guess one thing I'm curious about, I'm sure people watching this as well, in terms of kind of developing the game, were there any, like, interesting challenges or troll spots that you had to work around with that people may not really realize, you know, just by looking at the game? Yeah, I think... Yeah, obviously that's. I think that's part of being a developer. You have uh, that's a constant uh, with developing software in general. I think. Um, but one of the issues with working with, for instance, the Unity engine is that the Unity engine has. Uh, it's not really made for making two D games. So you have to, uh, like I said with Scald, I uh, I pretty much wrote my own engine and draw a pipeline and uh, sort of just use Unity for the final 
ten percent of it. But but it has a it has a like it has for instance a fairly big uh, memory impact. It can have at least that's something you have to work around if you want to, to port the game to Android. I've at least have had to work around it. I was a bit unprepared for how clunky the game can become quite quickly uh, because of the overhead with using Unity. Mm-hmm. And there's probably some some uh, technical things I could do with Unity. Uh, you know, there's probably Unity developers pulling their hair out now <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, because uh, they realize that it's just drawing pains for me. But I've had, to, uh, I've had to polish a lot of rough edges off for doing that. And I think also the, the art is very low resolution. And obviously a lot of this art is only placeholder. But... You know, there is a lot of work that goes into art direction and having art that looks... Uh, is there is going to be a lot of work going into the art direction and having art that looks uh, good all across the game and that sort of conveys the feel of the game uh, in a way that makes it uh, that makes it interesting to, to, to continue playing for a long time. And, and sort of the environmental storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, it changes a bit when you only have 16 by 16 pixels per tile, you know? Yeah. So uh, so it takes a lot more thought than you would think. I think people think uh, that making a game like this is just throwing together some, some models. And, but, it, you know, it takes a lot more work than you would think. Um, uh, I don't know, is it more on the technical side you're thinking or more like the design aspects? I would say either, really. On? Yeah, I know. I would say also in an RPG like this, I have um, an ambition of making like the combat in the game interesting, uh, and the balancing that goes into making a combat system. It just it's 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 a never ending. It never stops. You know, making dozens of spells, dozens of feats. How should they interact together? I have this idea of having a. Um, I mean, I, I really I play a lot of uh, collectible card games, and I really love the idea of pre-decision randomness, being dealt the hand of cards, and then having to form a tactic based on those on the cards you're being dealt. So there's a lot going on in Scald where um, there's a lot of potential for interaction between the characters and synergies, and you have to look at okay, who am I fighting? How's the initiative order? Okay, if I use this speed first and then this, but with that kind of design, there is a lot of room for shooting yourself in the foot with making, um, you know, very destructive uh, or very dominant strategies that keep playing out. So, so the balancing is uh, part of the design. Yeah, and yeah, like uh, RPG design. That let me see. That's like another hour and a half of a discussion we can have, and it is very hard. I feel to balance an RPG right. It is a topic that I'm sorry. Yeah, I think so yeah. too. Like as you said, like it's very easy to just throw all these crazy spells and powers and all that in the game, mm. and then not really care about balance, and then realize that you know seventy-five of the things I put in this game don't work, and maybe yeah. two of them are just so game-breaking that there's just nothing else. Like, why should I just do anything about it? Really? Yeah. Exactly, and there are so many RPGs, especially older RPGs, where where you settle on a strategy very quickly in combat. You cast the same spell every combat. You have the same character move forward with melee. The other hangs back and shoots arrows. It's it's the same every combat. Yep. You make no change depending on on what enemies you're fighting. There's just one strategy you can just go all in on, and it will win the game for time. And I, I and I, you know, it's it's. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to get rid of that completely because it's it's a really hard design challenge. Yeah. But I really want to try and at least uh, mix things up a bit. And also, you have things in you know in RPG design with 
how often do you level up? How often should you should you be able to complete every dungeon in one go? Do you have to go back and forth between towns? Is inventory management a thing? You know, it's it's all of these little um, <clears throat> logistical things that a lot of people expect from RPGs, but that probably make it a bit more grindy. But at the same time, if you take it out, is it still an RPG? You know, yeah. at least a CRPG, you know, a Western RPG. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and that takes a lot of tweaking, really, really does. And there is no upper limit to how many features you could put into the game, you know, because mm-hmm. the computer can calculate anything. And that's kind of the wet dream of any uh, tabletop RPG player who turns to computer role playing design. Yeah, <laughs> just keep adding in more things to keep track of trying to make that system deeper and then you just endlessly go down that rabbit hole of a combat system that is so complicated that may most people will never be able to figure out just what it is they're doing but like, exactly. as, you, as you said the other end of it is i've played so many rpgs where i could just put on a fast forward button and i don't even need to think about combat and yeah. It just gets to that point of, you know, why am I still playing this game if I'm just repeating the same thing for the next 50 hours straight? Exactly. I try to eliminate some of that because one of the things that I've done in Skull is that I have an auto-resolve button that resolves the combat turn by turn. It doesn't take all of the combat, but it it resolves round per round. So when you have, uh, when you end up in encounters where you know that your party is going to beat this encounter, um you can just blast through it very quickly and i think that's uh but at the same time uh there is if you try to do that with an encounter that that requires micromanagement you're not going to you know your party will die if you auto resolve it so i I try to give the player the option of uh, sort of tuning down the grinding at least removing the grinding and keeping the interesting bits of the combat to, to put it like that and I think it works pretty well so far. I'm very happy with the way it plays for now. Um, but we'll see. One of the problems with, with role-playing games is that, you know, they can go in the hundreds of hours or at mm-hmm. least in the tens. And how do you playtest something as complex as a role-playing game as thoroughly as you should, at least, you know? It's, uh, that's not an easy logistical challenge for a small dev team. Yeah. And as we were saying earlier with kind of development for Skull, like... You've been working on this game for at least two years now, and it's very easy. I know many developers have struggled with this. Again, that mindset of just adding more and more and more to a project, and yeah. all of a sudden, you're just ballooning your scope out of proportion. And yeah. especially, when, as you said, RPG design, because it is so abstracted, it becomes very easy, in a sense, to add more content to it. You know, if my story is made up of 10 quests, I could add 15 more quests on top of that. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and Richard Garriott has a, a very good quote, which is pretty famous in CRPG design, at least, which is that uh, it's not a quote, but a sort of like a design principle that he was, that he had heard to, adhered to, which was that he, he made the engine first, and then he told the story that the engine would allow him to tell. And... Uh, I think that's kind of, uh, that's definitely a way of sort of limiting to yourself because the dangerous part is when you, you keep modifying the engine to suit uh, the story you're trying to tell because that really never ends. You'll end up uh, yep. far down the rabbit hole. At some point, you have to lock the engine and say, this is the engine. What kind of story does it allow me to tell? And uh, I'm, at, I'm nearing a point where I'm at that point now. And yep. uh, I've been very 
cognizant of it, but it, that can really, really take you off the rails if you're not careful with it. Yep. And yeah, so many developers, especially like many first-timers, will go that route of just constantly tweaking, constantly trying to add things to it, and you just keep, you just basically just end up in a circle of, I add something new, it breaks the engine, let me fix that, but now I want to add something else new. And exactly. it just never ends. And like we've said over the course of this cast and on many of our previous ones, it's very important as a developer to be able to understand and lock down what you want your yeah. game to be. And in some sense, I think this is one of the reasons why modern retro is so appealing to developers because it kind of decides or it kind of makes a lot of the decisions of your game right away. If I want to make mm -hmm. a, uh, you know, a 2D Mario platformer, well, I don't need to worry about, you know, a morality system or, you know, RNG on top of that. But Exactly. But like we've said, like, it's so easy to just fall into that rabbit hole of just adding more and more to this game and not really comprehending, A, if it's actually making my game better, or B, do people actually want this in this title? Yeah. Yeah, there's this uh, there's this design principle, you know, of uh, some identify a problem and then create a solution for it, and then remove components from the solution until you have the absolutely smallest product that can still solve your problem, so to speak. Yeah, and that's really true for game design as design as well. And I would say if, if there are if there are aspiring game developers listening to this, this is really because this is what will sink your first five projects <laughs> at least. Yeah. Feature creep, they it will eat your projects for breakfast. Yeah, and I think just having a strong idea when you start a project, what am I trying to accomplish? Making some design pillars, and then going to the engine and make an engine that will allow you to fulfill that, mm -hmm. and then lock down the engine, and then see okay, the engine and tell the story within the constraints. Give yourself constraints constantly and design within those constraints. It makes it so much easier to finish the product. If you don't do that, you'll never finish the game. I can promise you that. Yeah. And it's the same thing with establishing what your core gameplay loop is going to be for many action-based games. That if you don't know what people mm. are going to be doing in your title, you know, nothing else is going to save your game if your core gameplay is poor. Doesn't matter, you know, what graphics engine you have, what your story is. If your game is legitimately not well designed or not that interesting to play, nothing else is going to save it. Well, that's true. That's true. You know, and there's also this. There's also this uh, thing that if your game doesn't ship, even get to experience that it's not really very interesting to play. So you know, just keep your eye on the target and make the game shippable just finish the game and you don't finish the game by bloating it it's uh mm. yeah <laughs> yeah and uh let me do a quick time check here we're still good there is one question that i wanted to uh, ask you on the stream al this is one of the things that we talked about you know on our twitter message but about oh. why is there a modern retro market? And because I think this is a very fascinating question. It's one I don't think we really have too many discussions about. Like, <clears throat> as we've said, this past decade, we have seen a lot of developers reach into the past in terms of making games. And again, I'm sure there are a few cynics watching or out there who are thinking, why aren't these developers just make a game that looks like something of today? Why not? If you're making a... Uh, you know, a 2D platformer. Why should you, or why are you thinking about using pixel art 
when you can just make a basic, use a basic 3D engine, or let me use that air quotes, basic 3D engine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And again, like, I'm sure people have asked you, like, why are you making a game that looks like something from the Commodore 64 when you have all these other options available? And again, we can, this even goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the AAA market. With AAA developers, you know, working on new genres or, you know, expanding things on that front, why go, you know, 15, 20, 30 years into the past to make your own game? I would say, I would say, you know, the first, the first uh, part of the answer, because this is a very complex question, I think, and it has a lot of answer. It has lots of different answers for different people, I think. But the first, obviously, the obvious thing is, is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And that's not really very interesting. So I don't think we should spend a lot of, it's, it's a given. So we don't, shouldn't spend a lot of time talking about it, I think. It's, I think it's fine making games based on nostalgia. Uh, but that's just sort of scratching the surface. I think uh, another really important uh, discussion is the one we've had earlier, where for many of these games, there's gold in them hills, uh, and players never abandoned these genres. The publishers did, because they wanted to keep up with the trends in technology, yeah. graphics in particular, I think. So, so uh, you know, because, because that becomes the question of, why do you still play chess? A thousand-year-old game, uh, but, but people still play it, because it's, it's fun to play. And um, a retro-style or old-school games are still fun to play, question of yeah but why don't why don't you just take the same game loop and apply modern graphics to it for instance well the thing is that making a pixelated game i'm not saying it's easier but for me at least it's been much more manageable to work in this medium than it would be to work in 3d because i don't really i don't particularly enjoy working with 3d as a technical concept i don't i I can't do any 3d art myself i prefer to have a rasterized table of of graphics, you know, I I I want to work <laughs> within a Cartesian <laughs> uh, coordinate system, you know, and and mm-hmm. plug pixels. That's how my brain understands what I see on a computer screen. So so for me, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's sort of I couldn't have done this in any other way. I think, mm-hmm. and that's genuine for me. And that's goes then you know, and then comes back to, okay, but why did you do the Commodore sixty four palette? Well, because it made the game manageable. For one person to make a game that's going to be pretty big, this mm-hmm. game would have uh, been brought to its knees, knees instantly if I had went with 256 colors uh, on 32 by 32 tiles. No way I could have finished it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of answers to that question, I think. And and uh, because I've heard the sort of uh, pandering to nostalgia argument and mm-hmm. that this is uh, sort of um, kind of a, an exploitation thing. But I think there's a lot more to why people make retro games than that. Really, really is. And I like uh, Janjvik's comment in chat about going back to retro to fix older games in terms of, again, like some of the more annoying uh, design issues or even just some of the limitations in terms of technology back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A really good example, that at least for action-based games, was that the vast majority of NES, aiming many of the SNES titles, had no internal saving. Back then, the idea yeah, of exactly. a battery backup was considered a luxury item. I mean, we really Absolutely. didn't see until, I want to say, I think PlayStation 3 era, and even, we could even argue the Xbox as well, when internal saving oh. became a standard feature on those platforms. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, like that kind of stuff didn't really help anyone back in the day. And you're oh, now. That's true. Yep. 
Just imagine, just just think about how long uh, sort of the coin-op arcane model mm -hmm. influenced game design, how games were kind of made to be infuriatingly difficult, difficult, and even long after it became, uh, even long after it was a good idea, it was still part of the design, you know, to be sort of uh, have this adversarial thing between the game designer and the player with uh, making the games difficult to, to finish, you know. And so I really think that, yeah, going back and fix old games or, or going back and reinventing old mm -hmm. genres in sort of a modern light, kind of like, like Mark was talking about, because you can't really, I mean, of course, an RPG is an RPG, but, but uh, an RPG from 1990s, it's almost difficult to compare it to a modern RPG in yeah. some ways. You yeah. can't just say that, okay, if you like this RPG in the 1990s, you're going to love this game 30 years later because it's two different beasts. And then I think it's, it's, it's interesting to go back and take that old game and see, okay, how can we make that game? Um, how can we sort of, uh, uh, give it an extreme makeover with all the modern, uh, tools mm -hmm. we have today and still make it appeal to the people who loved it back then? That's a really, really interesting idea. And I think it's a nice way of looking at games. It's yeah. kind of reusing game design. Yeah, and I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of it. Like, I wrote about this in my second book on platforming that, uh, just as you said earlier, that these games didn't fall out of popularity because they were bad. They fell out because publishers just stopped trying to make them. They wanted to keep chasing what was new. And we can see that in every decade of the game industry. The 90s were pretty much all platformers on the consoles. You know, whatever a game was going to come out was going to probably be in a platformer. In the thousands, mm. that shifted to the open world, you know, GTA model. Then mm. that shifted to first-person shooters. And now we're kind of in the Battle Royale phase things. But... Mm. Unlike other markets where, you know, when something becomes older or is no longer in favor, that it just goes away, we now have, as you, as you were saying, as we were talking about in chat, like, the independent scene has really picked things up because they're able to make those games. Again, yeah. like, you're not going to see Activision make a uh, RPG using Commodore 64 graphics anytime <laughs> soon. No, that's true. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no. Me out of business. <laughs> but, you know, I, and, and that's also another because uh, another interesting aspect, because when I was out running today, I was listening to your podcast or to your episode about uh, the loot boxes and the new legislature on mm -hmm. uh, loot boxes. And you were talking about how there's sort of, there's absolutely this resistance to a lot of these uh, pay-to-win mm -hmm. in-app purchases, a lot of what some people perceive as predatory business strategies in games. And I also think that sort of this retro revival in games, it's also about sort of reclaiming some of what, what's, what's gaming to us, if you understand. Mm -hmm. This is gaming the way I remember it and how I want it to be. There's, there's definitely an aspect of that, an aspect of sort of uh, the pendulum swinging the other way or the market somehow reacting to to um, to fatigue from some of yeah what some of us uh, consider to be more predatory business uh, practices. I think for me that's absolutely part of it as well. I really I want a game that isn't uh, that isn't uh, sort of muddled up with this uh, with with the market that I don't really like. If you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. way of making a stand or a statement in a way yeah and like we've said like being able to work with these retro constraints does free you up to focus more on the design and the storytelling and it mm -hmm. does get like, as anyone knows who's programmed a game like 
any kind of graphical update or again 2D to 3D, that is an enormous amount of work on your title. And like going back to what you were saying a few minutes ago regarding, you know, locking down your game, you really have to lock down especially your art and assets very early on. Like Nobody wants to get like a halfway or even just a quarter way through your game or th- through development and say, you know what? Let's switch to a watercolor aesthetic for our game now. You know, I'm sure it will be very easy to do that. <laughs> yeah, watercolor aesthetic especially. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me see. Um, yeah, we are getting close to two hours. So I guess... We could touch very quickly on the Kickstarter. And again, Al, if you're free in the future, we can always have you on for a follow-up cast about the game and what's going on. Sure. I guess before we quickly touch on the Kickstarter, I know we've kind of went in and around all over the place in terms of talking about Skull and RPG design. Are there Uh, any aspects you are thinking about or any topics that we didn't touch on with the game that you'd like to bring up? I, I, I'm just going to uh, to put it out there as well, because as I said earlier, I've been having a pretty uh, transparent development process mm-hmm. um, so far. And I think that's also this. There are, there's so many people who it goes into this thing with Kickstarter. Kickstarter is, uh, you know, consumer trust in Kickstarter. It fluctuates mm-hmm. wildly depending on projects that fail. So for me, I felt that it was important to... Uh, to have a very transparent development process and to interact very closely with my fans. And I'm really happy I did. I don't think it's easy to pull off and it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of careful consideration in the way you communicate with people. Uh, but it's sort of become this mantra in my head that it's sort of, it's transparency as a service. <laughs> and uh, that also goes to say that there's, that's not really a given in your development, not even in the indie scene sometimes, mm-hmm. especially when Kickstarters are involved, because there have been a few pretty ugly examples of, yeah. uh, of games, uh, even really indie games like mine, that's gone just completely off the radar and, and the money's gone, you know, and you realize that the game is probably not being made. Mm-hmm. And um, that's sort of been a strategy I've followed that's worked really well for me, also because it's given me a lot more eyes on the game. So uh, I would just like to say thank you to all the people who uh, who have been following development and offering feedback and playing the demo. And I really, really appreciate it. People have been so constructive. And a lot of my followers, they have a lot of um, experience with CRPGs, much more than I do. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been invaluable to me, really, really. Mm-hmm. So big thanks to all my fans. Yep. And like we've said, like Kickstarter, like each, like we keep coming up with these topics that we have like two to three hours on yeah, this yeah. conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like Kickstarter itself is, has definitely become a very major element for some of the developers we've seen. And it takes a lot of work. I think a lot more than what people would expect to get these projects going. As you said, like there are a lot of people who have been burned by Kickstarters. You know, the money disappears, the game never gets released, or the game gets released and it's missing everything that was promised. And you have to be really careful when you are taking, you know, money for something that is not even anywhere close to being finished yet. And there's just so much that gets into that. But uh, one thing that I want to ask you about the Kickstarter, and it's a question I always like to ask developers when they come on, how long did you spend planning it out before you actually officially posted it? Mm, I would say that I, I, I spent, I had the Kickstarter. I realized for some reason, even though Kickstarters had been falling out of favor 
actually when I started with Skulls, not when I launched, but when I started the project, in the back of my head, I always knew that I really, really wanted to do a Kickstarter, partially just to have done a Kickstarter, to sort of have the experience and, and you know, to test the concept, but also because I realized that for Skull, it would be really, really kind of the, the community building I would be able to do by doing a Kickstarter would be really important for me. So even though, uh, uh, yeah, so in my mind, I really started to to sort of gravitate towards that about a year before I launched. Okay. And I would say six months before I launched, I sort of went into production mode with sort of setting a date and then, okay, I know that I'm going to launch in May. And, uh, and then I started sort of uh, testing the waters with the followers I had on social media and on other uh, arenas where I was sort of trying to get an impression of what what is the project these people would like to see on Kickstarter? How do I? Is there any changes I could do to the project to make it more more appealing to the Kickstarter crowd? And definitely going, I would say, going with the graphical look that I did, and sort of going all in on the on the like hardcore retro RPG niche. That was a big part of it because I identified a big audience there. And then maybe like a, a like a, a written out business strategy for doing it. Pretty much all of the the social media I was doing and the way I was presenting the game was done with the Kickstarter in mind. And then I would say maybe six weeks before Kickstarter launched, I went into crunch mode. And particularly the four weeks before the Kickstarter were pretty intense with preparing everything because I'm just, I, I did everything myself for the Kickstarter. And I, I don't really recommend it, but you... Because you have to be really, really well disciplined and there's a thousand things that could go wrong. Mm. And I would have to say that I would actually prefer to have postponed my Kickstarter two months. But there is something to do with the timing in regards to, for instance, the summer months, which are usually not as good for kickstarting. So I had to, to go when I did, even though I wasn't finished. And I spent a lot of time doing it, a lot of planning. Uh, and you have to think about things that you don't normally think about and have to learn things that you didn't know already. So if you're considering doing a Kickstarter, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of planning and probably, I would say statistically, you would probably fail <laughs> at least the first time. And uh, yeah, so... Uh, it takes a lot of research. It takes a lot of uh, network building. Uh, yeah. It does. It's a really, really, and also when it's going on, it's it's pretty intense. I was pretty red-eyed when uh, <laughs> when I was finished with the Kickstarter, to be honest. Yep. But it was uh, well. well. <laughs> Can't complain. <laughs> yep. And again, like it's one of those things where so many people tried jumping onto it without understanding what it takes to actually make these things work, and it uh, failed. And it can be very rough in terms of actually playing things out. So as you were describing, I was just looking through the page itself. And I guess a few things I wanted to just like touch on. I guess one thing I know that you have exclusive uh, content, I think, for Kickstarters. And uh, I've seen that be a double-edged sword for other Kickstarter-based games in the past. So I just wanted to ask you, like, what was the decision to have that? Like, what were your thoughts on having that as a reward or an incentive? It is a double-edged sword, and I think uh, both in the terms that you will you end you risk having to end up making content that very few people get gets to see, and that's never really a good design decision. It's a very poor use of resources, and also there's always the chance that some people will be pretty ticked that you're walling mm -hmm. off content 
probably the way I conceive of it, probably I will holding content indefinitely. So I'll probably release uh, the extra content uh, at the release date or pretty soon after the release date for backers. And then it will probably be available as a DLC sometimes down the line, I would say, or in like a, yeah, bundled in with some more DLC content down the line, perhaps. So, uh, but it's, yeah, uh, the reward structure um, is complicated. And I think that's another area where you also you usually get a lot of rope to hang yourself with because yeah. it's so easy to overcommit or overpromise and then oh, find yes. that it's really difficult to deliver. Also, the thing with physical rewards and shipping, yep. that's a pretty, uh, uh, that's a minefield. So uh, I would have to say I was, I was the, the way I targeted the price range or, or like the target, um, not the price range, but the target uh, sum for the Kickstarter, it was such that if I had gotten the, the sum I asked for, but nothing more, if I had gotten 100% completion, <laughs> but but not not 260%, it would have been a pretty, that oh man, that would have been a pretty big letdown. Because uh, there's also this strategy that the less you ask for, the sooner you will reach mm. 100% funding, and the more money you'll get flowing in, funding the project. With artificial, with an artificially too low amount of money, so that's really kind of a tactical gamble, you think. Yeah. And um, it worked very well for me, but it could have just as easily backfired. And you also have to be careful, as you said, like if you commit, if you say to people, "I can make this game with fifty thousand dollars," and let's say you, and that's your goal, but then you realize, wait, I actually need one hundred fifty thousand dollars for it. You are then on the. You are then contractor. You are on the. Uh, I forget the term there. You are committed, essentially. I should say to them making that game with a budget that you probably think is not even feasible. Absolutely, and so many people burn themselves doing that. Uh, or I don't know that if many people, but but there's been there's been um, sufficient amount of stories of people ending up like that. That you see that it's eroded the confidence that people have had in Kickstarters. I would have to say that I think why I uh, succeeded is that uh, with uh, Noxar case went the month before me. I think both me and Mark have the same idea that. A rising tide lifts all boats in the indie game industry. So, because we could have just as easily been been competitors, because we really compete for at least part of the same market. But I think we both, uh, without saying saying it in so much so many words, I think we both uh, agreed that uh, we could really, really benefit from each other's help and from uh, doing social media together. So we actually, we had a lot of synergies from each other's campaigns. And Mark and his team ran a really, really successful campaign. And honestly, I think that that helped my campaign. I would have gotten less money if they hadn't gone before me because people uh, became enthusiastic about uh, this kind of game. It's a very well-suited genre for Kickstarters. I mean, a lot of the people who like my kind of game, there are people who hang around on Kickstarters looking for the back. And uh, even if they backed Mark's project in May, that didn't keep them from backing my project in June. It just made them more hungry for for more of the same way. So I was really lucky with having them go the month before me. Uh, but uh, but also, I think it was a strategy, both for me and Mark, due to uh, collegial relationship 
uh, during this process. And I think you don't see that uh, a lot of the time. Some people are very willing to yeah. to uh, yeah. set each other down the river and uh, stab each other in the back in this business, surprising people. But just be professional and be nice to people and be an asset to people around you. And people will... You know, people will really flock to uh, your project. And that's also, I think, the thing with Kickstarter, because a lot of people that back me are also game developers, and they don't really back the game necessarily. They back the dream that a single developer can kickstart a game and uh, and make it even in this economy, in, in air quotes. And uh, and those people, they really notice if you're a professional, if you treat people okay, I think that's uh, it's so underrated to have the soft people skills in this business. Yeah. Uh, like I always say with game wisdom that, you know, my reputation is, you know, it for me. Like if I lose it, you know, I can't get it back. Like I need people to know that I'm professional, that I know what I'm talking about. And as you said, be courteous, be respectful. And it does yeah. help when it comes to getting people on your side who legitimately want to see you succeed. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, it's there is an untapped potential in helping each other, just sharing. And that's also been my strategy on Twitter. I don't have a huge Twitter following, but the people I have are, are they're good people and they really help me. But the reason why that is, I think, is that, you know, you should just see something you like, call, like, call them out, tell them that you like mm-hmm. it, share it on your Discord, just go the, the, the extra, it's not even an extra mile, it's an extra centimeter, it takes five mm-hmm. seconds, and it really, really helps for solo developers to get that little push, and I think that really buys you just so much goodwill, and uh, people remember that, people will remember that for years to come, mm-hmm. I think it, uh, it can't be underestimated. And Especially as we've said, when it comes to the to the idea of Kickstarter as well, that you were built like how long? I'm assuming like right from the get go with Skull, like you were reaching out and trying to build a community around the game. Oh. Let me see. I'm sorry. Was that a question? I'm sorry. I was reading in the chat. Was that a question? I, I didn't. I didn't get it. I was just saying like about how much time you spent building a community around Skull and getting people to learn and know it existed out there. I I have to say I spent uh, I definitely spent some time doing that and I had a lot of uh, and that's I think that's very that it's not exclusive to Skull but that was uh, it it kind of comes with the genre that I could spend a lot of time going into relatively small communities mm-hmm. like uh, like a Facebook group for Ultima fans or uh, a Reddit post for Magic Candle fans. And, uh, but still, even if I got only a handful of followers from there, they're the kind of people that will really go the mile and, you know, um, who will back uh, the Kickstarter at a high level, who will engage with the product during alpha testing and give you really good feedback. So for me, they've been really valuable and, um, uh, it's worked very well for me, I would have to say so far. I don't really, I don't have a, I wouldn't say I have a big following, but the people I have are really, really committed. And I think that in the end, when the game finally goes up on more public platforms, it goes up on Steam, mm-hmm. it goes on the Google Play Store, probably uh, this will give me some uh, reach because those are people who I know will promote the game. They, yeah, and so forth. And so at least for now, it's uh, it's been a very... Uh, good community to have i think but i spent a lot of time doing it and you know targeting certain groups where i knew that okay 
this group will have people who's interested in my games. I had very little impact in doing mass marketing, yeah. for instance, on Twitter or Facebook. That didn't really get me anything. So, uh, yep. And yeah, you can only do so much when you're a solo person like this. And it's important to be able to focus on you know, your strengths and being able to you know get the work done. So. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. I think we are just about there in terms of time. There is one last thing I wanted to ask you about with the Kickstarter, and then we'll kind of go into our wrap-up. For people watching us live right now, there's going to be officially last call for questions. So if you have any, please get them in now, as we will be ending things in probably the next five to ten minutes. But uh, the part that I want to ask you about the Kickstarter, again, keeping with this theme of knowing what you can do and also – you know, figuring out what your goal is for the game, I wanted to ask you about your approach to the stretch goals. So I was uh. looking at the list. So you, of course, have a basic one, you know, full-color manual, things like that. And then we uh. have stuff like additional areas, a new class. I think you hit one for, here it is, a procedurally generated murder done. And th that's a <laughs> quote from the Kickstarter itself. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> So I, I just wanted to ask you, like, what was like, like, how did you approach stretch goals for a project like this? Because, again, as we've said, it would be very easy to just have like a list of 50 different stretch goals for your game. Yeah, I think I think what I did, because stretch goals are difficult because it's you could set them all ahead of time. That's not necessarily, I mean, that can definitely work, but I, it didn't work as well for me. So I had to do a combination of listening to feedback from backers whilst sort of trying to combine that. I, I gave them a lot of closed choices, you know. Hmm. I would uh, sort of probe into, okay, how you know, what should the next thing be? Is it an extra area or is it an extra class? Or is it a cosmetic thing like... Uh, like a uh, full color manual or things like that and trying to be sensitive to feedback from the players whilst keeping it within things that I felt comfortable committing to things that I would probably have included in the game after all uh, if I had I wouldn't say unlimited amount of money but if I had more money down the line it would sort of be a natural extrapolation of the way the game was going already for instance making it a three act game instead of just setting it all on on one island, the one one area in the game world, things like that. So, it's, um, I, I think I think what you have to keep in mind all the time while setting stretch goals is just be cognizant of the risk and think: How is this going to sink my project? Is this something that's going to ruin my project? Think about that more than is this an interesting because there's always it's it's yeah. easy to find interesting stretch goals, but it's the risk that you have to consider. How can I minimize my risk? And as you said earlier, when it comes to physical goods as well, you can go insane with uh, yeah. come up with all crazy ideas for it. And then that can completely kill your project when you realize, again, the logistics of shipping them around the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have to put big margins in there to make sure that you, uh, yeah, that, that the margins fall on your side. And then just uh, just uh, add 20% to the cost on top of that, even just when you do your uh, budgeting for shipping, because it will become that expensive. Oh, yes. One thing I want to add with the, with the stretch goals, in case someone is considering to do a Kickstarter, it's extremely important that you, in a tasteful way, the integrity of each backer tier if you use a stretch goal to undermine one of the tiers you will have made people really really angry with you for instance if you say that 
people on this tier, they get the full color manual, but then you add as a stretch goal, okay, now everyone gets the full color manual. You will have people, and it's easy to do that. It's easy to not think about that, but you will make people really, really angry if you do that. That's the thing that will turn people off your project completely. It's, uh, it's just this, uh, people pay for the exclusivity. They, they do actually. And if you undermine that somehow, then why would they, why should they have paid more? You know, and, uh, you should be really, really careful with that. And we avoided all those trap, traps with the Kickstarter, I think. So I'm yeah. very happy with, with that. <laughs> and as we said earlier, like when it comes to setting up these goals and the rewards around them, that you are collecting money from people for something that is nowhere near close to being finished. And yeah. if they start, if anyone gets even a whiff of you know anything being underhanded or under the table like that, that can easily turn your entire fan base against you. Absolutely. And also, it, it, that's another thing that will really undermine the confidence in you is don't air your grievances with your fans. Hmm. If you're really tired, if you're really exhausted, your Discord channel is not uh, the place to air that. If you're frustrated with Kickstarter or with taxation, just keep it off the table. It's not for your fans to hear. Treat them like your children in that sense, you know? It's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would have to say. But people do that also. And I think that really, for me at least, that's something that really, really turns me off the project. It makes yeah. me sure that, okay, this developers, this developer is not going to go the line if they're already starting to crack in public like <laughs> this. And you have to, you have, you can't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Well, I think that is, again, we could easily switch any one of these other topics, but I know that you probably have to get going in a few minutes, I think you said. I think you said like two hours around like your comfortable time. It's midnight in Norway now, yeah. and I work here. Yeah, so I don't want you to be up all night long talking, although <laughs> I'm sure the audience wouldn't mind that, you know, just us being on for another three, four hours. But, um, Al, it's been a great, it's been a great time having you on. To wrap things up for the cast, for people watching, do you have any tentative dates for when Skull will be out? I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping June or July 2020, next summer, is the tentative release date. Okay. And before we do that, uh, we're probably, as we start ordering up the physical boxes, we're probably also going to do an extra round of pre-orders for people who didn't get to follow the, uh, the, the Kickstarter, but you still want like a physical product or something like that. So, uh, I would really just recommend people keep, keep their eyes open. Follow me on, on Twitter and, uh, if you want to play the demo, join us on Discord and I'll give you a demo key as well. And you can engage with us in the development. You don't have to be a backer to do that either. Okay. We'd love to have you. Great. And you already mentioned this uh, in various parts of the cast, but to clarify for this point, in terms of platforms, what platforms will Skull be on? Well, the, the platforms we've committed to um, for the for the Kickstarter is PC, Mac, and Linux. Mm-hmm. With a big question mark on the Linux, I don't actually think we actually, I don't think we promised it on the Kickstarter, but it's conceivable that we will be able to ship to Linux uh, operating systems as well. Um, and then the game is going to for uh, because it's, uh, I mean, unless the game flops completely, I'm also going to port it to uh, handheld devices. But that is stage two. The the release date next summer is for the laptop, over the desktop devices. Okay. And let me see, what was the other question? So people can check out the demo now. Oh, and I guess a big one. Uh, you already mentioned your Twitter. Are there any other social media people can find you at or uh, you want them to know about for Scold? Oh, for now, I try to concentrate uh, my social media on Twitter. 
uh, I assume we'll add some uh, we'll add the details in the show notes uh, or okay. something like that. But on Twitter, I'm uh, I'm at scoldrpg. Evlog is also scoldrpg.com, and uh, the Discord invite will be in the show notes. You can uh, join us there for all things scold related. <laughs> for sure. All right. So I guess with that, my final question for you for the evening is, do you have anything you would like to say to the fans watch or anything to kind of wrap the cast up with? Oh, just just uh, feel free to engage with the project. I really, really love, talk, love, uh, love talking to the fans and I'm passionate about uh, CRPGs and I would love to hear your opinion. So please reach out. That's all I have to. Yeah. What I need to do is get like you, Mark, I think mean, one other developer on, like who's wearing like old school game, and we'll just have like a CRPG roundtable cast at some point. I would love that. That's the best idea I've heard all week. That would be amazing. <laughs> all right, maybe I'll send Mark another message when the cast, when his cast is about up, and we'll see if we can get something together like that. Let's see about that. Good idea. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think with that, we are going to end things for tonight and. For people watching us live right now, this Saturday, that is the, I should know these days by now, that will be the 28th on our Indie Spotlight stream. I will be also checking out Scold then, as uh, Al did send me a demo key for that, so I'll be able to give my thoughts on it then. And again, if you are new, be sure to check out the Discord and Patreon link down below. But, again, it has been a pleasure hanging out with you this evening. Best of luck with Scald. And, yep, uh, when you're free in the future, it'll be great to have you back on. Thank you so much. I really hope to uh, talk to you again. Not a problem. And for people watching us, if you are working on your own game or just want to talk design, we are always looking for new guests for our live and recorded casts. Be sure, uh, feel free to send me a message. You can find me on Twitter, at GWBicer, or, again, anywhere here. But I'll be back later tonight for our regular game stream and come back for daily discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where he's in the art and science of games. Until our next chat, have a great night, everybody.